0: The markets, we just can't get enough of them.
1: Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy.
0: Welcome to Magic Markets with your co-hosts, The Finance Ghost and Mohamed Nalla. Together,
1: we have more than 25 years of combined experience in the markets.
0: Our recent shows in Magic Markets Premium have included platforms like TripAdvisor, technology businesses like Salesforce, luxury consumer brands like LVMH and Aston Martin, and even an old school industrials group like 3M. For just 99 Rand a month and no minimum commitment, there is no better way to learn about international stocks and how to research them. Visit magic-markets.com to sign up today. Welcome to episode 130 of Magic Markets and Mo and I are going to use this opportunity I think to talk through not just the macro environment but also what this means for companies and how they manage their balance sheets, what it means for their debt, their share buybacks, their dividends... So a lot of quite technical stuff here, but this is really important stuff for you as an investor or as a trader, or with, you know, however you choose to participate in the market. It really helps to understand the stuff. So Mo, always fun to do this with you. We just finished our premium show on Home Depot, an absolute winner there of a show, really interesting research. I would encourage any of our listeners to go and check it out and subscribe to premium. And now we get to do some stuff around balance sheets.
1: Yeah, Ghost, it it's always fun doing this. I mean, just, just on the Home Depot point, the best part for me out of Magic Markets Premium is sometimes looking at a stock thinking, oh, this is going to be really boring. And then when you actually get stuck in under the hood, you have a look, you come out with insights that are actually very fascinating, very interesting. Home Depot, one of the more interesting stocks we've covered recently, surprisingly so, not what I would have expected. But to today's free show. I mean, when we talk about this, last week we were chatting a little bit about the macro, we were talking about which cycles have outperformed, where are we in the business cycle versus the market cycle, all very important in terms of strategically positioning your portfolio for the correct, I guess, economic cycle based on where you are, South Africa, globally, and so forth. This week, a slightly different tack because last week we were speaking before the very important US Federal Reserve meeting. It was still debatable. You know, does the Fed pause? Does the Fed go with another hike? Now, is it a pause with a pivot saying no hurry to hike now and we're gonna cut? Is it a pause with clause? That's something I threw out there and you chuckled, bad dad joke. But it ended up being the pause with clause. You know, there's a pause, there's no pivot. And so we want to unpack what happened in the macro and what are the implications further down the line in terms of companies' balance sheets and then the implications for investors in those companies. So really looking forward towards this being a very interactive and exciting episode.
0: I want to unpick some of those terms, you know, in the intro there, Mo, that you've used, which I think people assume everyone understands it, but they don't necessarily. I had a good chuckle. I was at the pharmacy earlier, and they have these sort of decongestion pills or flu pills. It doesn't really matter. And They were called Sudafed. And it's what people wish they could do when Jerome Powell hurts their portfolios is pseudo-Fed. But sadly, you can't do that. You just have to suck it up. And the Fed has a lot of power, obviously, over what goes on in the market and enormous influence over what happens to asset prices. And it's these concepts like a pivot or, you know, that cool thing you came up with of pause with claws.
1: Yeah, that's why I enjoy these discussions is because sometimes I get caught up in the jargon. I assume everyone's kind of getting where I'm going with this. So let's take a step back. First of all, U.S. Federal Reserve, that's the central bank in the United States, and they set the policy rate. Now, what is the policy rate? That's the interest rate that is deemed to be the risk-free rate, I guess, in that economy. But when you're talking the Fed, it's pretty much the global risk-free rate, simply because you know the dollar is the world's reserve currency, whether you like it or not. And so this is why it's so important, is because by setting what the global risk-free rate is, you fundamentally see that filter through into asset prices. That's something we've discussed before in terms of what is the discount rate, what does that mean for valuations. So when it comes to the Fed, yes, you might want to sue the Fed, but the reason you want to sue them is because we've gone from this era of really low interest rates to where we are today, and we've gone through a series of 10 consecutive hikes the U.S. Federal Reserve. You've seen that really filter through into other global emerging markets as well. The South African Reserve Bank, for example, compelled to follow suit with that, mainly because if you're out of kilter with that, you see the pressure come through in terms of your own asset prices, inflation, and maybe your currency. So let's contextualize that. We've gone from 0% interest rates effectively to where we are right now, where the Fed kept rates on hold at 5.25%. Now, for context, Think about it this way. If your mortgage was set at, and it would never be set at 0.25%, all of a sudden, you're sitting with a base rate at 5.25%. This means that your cost of funding has gone up, whether you're a homeowner, whether you're a corporation, and that starts to have an important impact in terms of your capital allocation decisions. Do you raise debt as a business? At what price do you raise the debt? Is it now cheaper for you to raise equity? And I think that's some of the nitty-gritty that we're gonna try and get into in today's show.
0: Yeah, because this is all capital allocation decision, right? I think in the early days of Ghost Mail I wrote about how a capital structure is like an ice cream ultimately. You know, you can have some vanilla, you can have some chocolate, you can have some strawberry, and at the end of the day, it's all supported by this cone, which is the profitability. And the way you fund that balance sheet is just a mix of debt and equity and convertibles. And you know, we've had a bunch of discussions with our friends at Westbrook around how private debt gets, you know, quite juicy in a market like this because the base rate is so much higher. And the reality is that the higher the prevailing interest rates in the market the worse off you are as an equity investor because at the end of the day you are sharing the spoils of this treasure hunt with the banks and if the banks have a higher interest rate then they are getting a bigger share of the treasure relative to equity holders which is exactly why you've seen or not exactly why but it's certainly one of the reasons why you've seen a lot of equity values come off as interest rates have gotten higher there's a technical point there around how it affects you know, the present value of future cash flows, but it's not as simple as that.
1: Yeah, in fact, I just want to interject very quickly because, yes, it's about how the company shares the spoils between shareholders and the banks. But as an investor, and maybe to a lesser degree in South Africa, but I know know there's a, a corporate debt market in South Africa. Globally, there's a much larger corporate debt market. And this starts to become the realm where you get professional money managers, you know, whether that's your asset manager that sells you a fixed income type fund or whether that's a big pension fund. There's just a difference in terms of where different investors play in terms of that capital stack. So you're not just sharing it with the banks. You might be sharing it with a corporate bondholder, for example, as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So any debt provider, and then you get convertible instruments as well. And that's another whole interesting story. So they typically will carry a lower yield, but then they will allow for convertibility into shares, either at whatever the prevailing share price is or at a discount. So that's known as mezzanine finance, because that kind of sits as the mezzanine floor, you know, between equity and debt at either ends of the spectrum. Very, very interesting. Any kind of convertible instrument would typically sit there. I mean, to give you some idea, you know, senior debt is generally priced at roughly prime. That's sort of the prime lending rate, you know, from, to give a South African example, you know, those rates will be called different things in different markets. And then mezzanine debt will often sit at sort of 500 basis points above that when you're lending into sort of private companies, maybe 300 basis points above that in the public space. And then equity would typically be sort of 600 basis points and above the prime lending rates in terms of the return that's needed. So what companies do is they look at this and they look at all these different funding options and they try and optimize it and say, okay, how do I bring my total cost of capital down, but without taking on too much risk because, and I know you're not a fan of debt, Mo, for various reasons, you know, not least of all because you're not allowed to earn interest, but because the thing can really, really hurt companies, you know, businesses go bankrupt because the debt holders have the keys. That's why they go under. That is what happens.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm a little more risk averse when it comes to debt, but the fact of the matter is that in, in modern finance, Uh, there is a very real role that debt plays in a business. And we're going to unpack some of that. But going back to your point, in terms of that layering, the ice cream, it's the same thing as the company. Like you say, you've got your risk-free rate, then you've got a credit spread on top of that. Then on top of that credit spread, if you're looking at equity, you've got what they call an equity risk premium. And these all sound like very scary words. But effectively, it's just a spread of return that has to accrue to whoever the holder is of that asset, based on the riskiness of the asset. That's really all it should be if we just distilled it down to basic principles. So when you hear things like equity risk premium, it's how much more should I be compensated simply because technically holding equity in a business is riskier than holding debt in a business. Now, where I wanna go with this as well goes, because this is gonna filter very nicely into a balance sheet discussion when it comes to companies, is that a company, a business, looks at their weighted average cost of capital. And what does that mean? It means that, yes, you might have, let's use a simplistic example. If you had 50% equity in a business and 50% debt, and if the cost of your equity was 10% and the cost of your debt was 5%, your weighted average cost of capital would come out at the average of those being 7.5%. So that would be the cost hurdle that the business would need to overcome in terms of the return they generate To generate what is then called economic profit. Now, obviously, it's never going to be as simplistic as that. You're not going to have a 50-50 split, and it's not going to be these nice round numbers, but that becomes very important because when you assess companies over the longer term, you've got to see, is this company generating a return in excess of its cost of capital so that it can prove whether it's economically profitable or viable or not? And thereafter, you can distill that back down to Well, are you a debt holder? Are you an equity holder? Are you being compensated adequately for the risk? And this has important implications from a company's perspective because as the cost of those various components of capital move around, the company would be better suited either raising capital by way of an equity raise or alternately raising capital by way of debt. Similarly, in terms of how they structure their balance sheet, they might choose to repay or repurchase shares effectively decreasing the equity component uh, and maybe leverage up the business by taking on more debt so these are some of the dynamics that i think we need to try and unpack for our listeners
0: and the other thing we see all the time is a company you know when they've got too much operating leverage they really shouldn't have much in the way of financial leverage but they do so we covered top golf callaway recently the golfing business they're rolling out all these entertainment venues called top golf So the problem there is they've got lots of operating leverage in that model. I mean it's entertainment venues, it's golf which is very seasonal and then on top of that they've raised a whole lot of debt which is then financial leverage. Now that is very very dangerous because if you've got lots of debt you need steady income. I mean just think about your personal finances. If you are sitting in a corporate job where you are feeling very secure, you're more likely to go and raise debt, right? Because you feel like you can handle it and you feel like things won't go wrong. If you've just started a new job or the company you work for is a startup or you're not quite certain about your income, you are probably not going to go and rapidly leverage your own personal balance sheet You're not going to sleep at night, right? But corporates will sometimes do this anyway because ultimately a lot of these management teams are just playing around with other people's money. And that is why something like management alignment in these stocks is so important. You want to be invested alongside management, not in management. That's a very, very important distinction ultimately. At the same time, a lazy balance sheet is also a problem. So you cannot have a scenario where, you know, you've got a retailer with highly dependable cash flows every single year and there's no effort to use debt that management team is getting a free ride. They are making their lives far too easy by having absolutely no debt. And what you often find in those organizations is they are very, very fat in operating expenses because they're not under pressure to actually do a proper job of managing the business. Then something goes wrong, either in the business model or the economic situation, and suddenly that fat sort of Operating expense base becomes a huge issue, and they do poorly anyway, even though they didn't have any debt. So, you know, a little bit of debt focuses the mind in some of these corporates, and uh, there's a lot of theory around that. So, you've got to be careful of a lazy balance sheet and a balance sheet that is just too hot in terms of leverage. I think that is
1: such a critical point, right? Because a little bit of debt keeps everyone honest. You know, you've, you've got to make sure that there is a little bit of a fire under management's proverbial behind in order to keep them honest, keep them focused on running the business. But we're also seeing another form of pressure that comes through, and it's not just on the debt side. When you have these lazy balance sheets, you certainly start to see some activist shareholders come through saying, hey, you're sitting on too much capital. So what are you gonna do with the capital? Are you going to deploy that into new businesses, grow the business organically? Or if not, and this happens to be the case in many instances, If not, they start coming under pressure from their shareholders at various, you know, again, uh, earning season, at AGMs, at meetings with their shareholders. They come under pressure as the shareholders say, well, actually, if you're just sitting on this capital, if you're not actually deploying it, you've got to return that capital to me as the shareholder because I can deploy that capital. I can generate a superior return on my investment and Do you do that by way of share repurchases? Do you do that by way of dividends? There's some complexities today, but in the US, we've seen this massive push towards share repurchases. And and a lot of the rationale behind that is because yes, there are some preferential tax treatments thereof, but also bear in mind there's this massive overhang of executive compensation. One of your bugbears goes where executives are remunerated with shares and in order to offset some of that the company then also has a share repurchase program that helps neutralize all of that issuance that comes through in the market
0: yeah it's probably a topic for another podcast entirely so we've taken some feedback on board from listeners about how they're struggling these days to get through the full podcasts, you know, because life is so busy and everyone's back at work. So we're starting to keep these a little bit shorter, you might notice as listeners. So maybe we need to do another full show on, you know, buybacks and dividends. It'd be good to hear from our listeners if there's appetite for that, and then we'll absolutely do it. But Mo, you're right, you know, at the end of the day, those buybacks in the US are used in the wrong way. They're used a lot better in South Africa, and then dividend theory is a whole other story, of course. In the US, the dividend aristocrats love to maintain that status at all costs. So they will pay a relatively small dividend, even when it's not the right thing to do, so that there's such a buffer that they almost never have to drop the dividend. And then they can proudly say, Look, for 50 years, we've paid growing dividends. Well, yes, but was it the right thing for shareholders? Who knows? So there's a lot of signaling to the market. There's a lot of you know, institutional mindset that impacts this. you know, they want the dividend to go up every year because that's what institutions want and management teams are terrified that if they cut the divvy, even if it's the right thing to do, pension funds will head for the exit and the share price will get smashed and they'll look like idiots anyway, even if long-term it might be the right decision. So an enormous amount of behavioral finance comes into these capital structure decisions. But ultimately, this is where value is lost or created, for shareholders. Yes, on the income statement as well, for sure, but very much so in the capital structure.
1: Yeah, it's why we look at, you know, how does a company allocate its capital? You know, is it generating enough of a return in the business? Well, then you don't really have a problem. But there's another dimension to the dividend point that you had just raised in that it really does depend. And I think companies spend a lot of time with some advisors saying, you know, who are our actual investors, the the rump of our investors? Are they investors who like a steady dividend yield? on the actual share price because then as the share price bounces around some companies try and anchor to a stable dividend yield other companies interestingly enough try to anchor to a nominal dividend and this becomes a problem because they will try and grow the nominal dividend over time their investors might be a lot more cash flow sensitive and in those instances you see the dividend yield being a lot more volatile because then it starts to track movements in the share price You also see the dividend payout ratio being a lot more volatile. Now, why is this important? Circling this all the way back to the cost of capital is bear in mind if you are targeting a nominal dividend and your share price collapses and you still continue to increase your dividend to even maintain that dividend, all of a sudden the dividend yield spikes from what it was to a much higher level and so the implied cost of your equity component in your overall weighted average cost of capital, the concept we discussed up front, Balloons out of size. So keep an eye out on those dynamics as well, simply because, you know, capital allocation decisions by management, by a company, whether that's strategic and over the longer term, those have ramifications in terms of what the company is likely to do in terms of where they raise capital, what that means in terms of their cost of capital, and then the hurdle rate that they've created for themselves in order to be economically profitable.
0: And it all goes back to the Fed, Mo, as you mentioned right up front. At the end of the day, the level of prevailing rates in the market drives the capital structure to a very large extent. And that's why macroeconomics and what we see on company balance sheets are inextricably tied. It's, of course, what makes the market so incredibly interesting. And, Mo, with the importance of central banks, I think it's also useful to understand that they don't always act in exactly the same way. Yes, the, the leading central banks like the Fed certainly influence the policy of a lot of central banks elsewhere in the world. But a business in Europe doesn't necessarily have exactly the same sort of cost of debt profile as one in the US at the moment because the ECB and the Fed are not the same.
1: Yeah, Ghost, I mean, that's fantastic. I think we're almost planting the seed for a podcast discussion on another day because I wanna almost land on this point is yes, the Fed moves, maybe I oversimplified it, it's the global risk free rate, that's the US dollar Fed funds rate. But recently, we're actually seeing subtle divergences. So if you look at Europe, the ECB was slightly slower to move than the Fed. You know, where the Fed got 10 hikes across the line, the ECB is still currently on eight hikes, and their policy rate is a little bit lower. You know, they moved last week by 25 basis points, even though the Fed kept rates on hold. And that's because they're slightly out of lockstep. But then the big divergences we're seeing is actually out of the East, out of Asia versus the Western economies. Last week, we saw the Chinese provide additional stimulus into their economy, and they actually cut rates by 10 basis points. We're seeing the same pro-stimulus approach from the Bank of Japan. So these all become very important because, again, if you're looking at a global multinational, they're going to be these push and pull factors. They filter through not just in terms of the cost of funding for the companies in those regions, they also then start to have an impact in terms of exchange rates and what we expect there, and that is definitely a topic for another day.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Let's leave it there Mo. To our listeners, thank you so much for joining us. Let us know what you think about maybe a shorter format show and some of the stuff we've covered here today. I think you know we're going a little bit back to basics in terms of some of these more technical issues, but this is the stuff that really helps you understand what's going on out there. And again, I would encourage you if you've never checked out Magic Markets Premium, go and check it out. For 99 Rand a month, it gives you the real world practical application of this stuff and you can see the way we analyze companies using this technical understanding. Until next week, thank you for listening to Magic Markets and goodbye. Thanks. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor.